It's good to see you all here this morning. So thankful that you uh, braved the, the certain death of COVID and uh, got yourself here anyways. We're going to be looking again at uh, Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me, Philippians chapter 4. And we will see what the Holy Spirit has prepared for us this morning. But it is so good to be with you and to see your faces and be together once again. It's been a great encouragement. You know that the first sin in human history was a result of being discontent, right? You know the story. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that what they had was not enough. He convinced them that they needed more and they believed him and fell into sin. This is what the book of Genesis tells us. The Christian author Jerry Bridges says this, contentment is one of the most distinguishing traits of the godly person. Because a godly person has his heart focused on God rather than on possessions or position or power. Contentment is one of the most distinguishing traits of the godly person. If you had to examine your heart right now, would you say that generally you are a content person? I hope by the end of our time together that you'll have a, a handle on what it means to be content, whether or not you are content, and a path to genuine, authentic, lasting contentment. We're going to find this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. If you're there, I'm going to read it for you. And I want you to see what Paul says about contentment here. I want you to notice his example of contentment. Paul wrote, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to, be made, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. <clears throat> Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for the needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we began this short sermon series on contentment. We're actually at the tail end of our longer sermon series in Philippians, which we began last January. Uh, but now we're coming to the close of this wonderful letter that we've been spending some time in. And we see here that Paul is concerned that we, God's people, are a content, joyful people. And so last, well, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I began this sermon series. And uh, I began by trying to communicate to you the definition of biblical contentment. I remember reading for you and trying to explain Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, long gone Puritan's um, definition, and, I, and here it is. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I spent over half the sermon reviewing that definition. If you would like to see it more clearly or you can't remember what I said, I, I hope that you'll go back and listen to it. These three sermons that I'm taking to get through these few verses here really do go together. And the first sermon was a, an unpacking of that definition. I also introduced to you five principles of contentment beginning in verse 10, five principles of contentment. I covered the first principle the last time I spoke. And if you remember, the first principle is this, a content person is confident in God's providence. A content person is confident in God's providence. We see that in verse 10. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but had no opportunity. He knew that God providentially did not allow the Philippians to be in a place to support him financially. But he was okay with that. He was confident in God's providence. Even it didn't suit him too well. There is, this is where contentment begins. If you want to be a joyful, content person, it must begin with your settled conviction that God's providence always works in your favor. This is where we must begin. We, we can be confident in God's providence because of four things. And I mentioned those again in the first sermon I preached about this. And that is this, God's providence is wise, it's loving, it is good, and it's irresistible. Now, how can you have a settled confidence in God's providence by viewing it those four things? Well, let me re review them for you. God's providence is wise, in other words, how God deals with you is never made in error. God never fails in his wisdom concerning the situation or circumstances of your life. He's never surprised. He knows exactly what he's trying to accomplish and how to do it. He is completely all wise. Not only that, he is loving. We can have confidence, a settled confidence in God's providence because our God is a loving God. Everything he does is because he loves us. Nothing he does is done out of anything but love. And so you can be confident and secure in God's providence because he's wise and loving, and thirdly, because he's good. Everything he does is good. Just like everything he does is loving, everything he does is good. There's not things he does that are bad. And then irresistible. This is simply saying God is able to pull off what he wants. God's providence is irresistible. He accomplishes his purposes every single time. And so you can rest assured, you can confidently rest in God's providence because it's wise, loving, good, and irresistible. Then I went out 48 hours after that sermon and got in a car accident. Some of you are aware of that. And so in God's providence, he had me traveling west on Washington, and a guy pulled out of a parking lot and T-boned me and rolled my pickup and so I was out of commission for a couple of weeks. And I, of course, I had one of you, dear saints, remind me of my sermon uh, just 48 hours before. That was your encouragement to me. Don, John, isn't it wonderful, she said, when you have to actually live out a sermon you preached. And I told her, thank you very much. Um, but anyways, I, I hear those kind of comments regularly from you, dear folks, and I appreciate it. But anyways, we have this important 
reality, the first principle of contentment that we see here in Philippians 4, 10 through 19, is that a content person is confident in God's providence. I'm going to cover five principles. The first one's already been covered. I'm going to cover principles two and three today from this text, and next week, Lord willing, uh, principles four and five. So today, I'm going to cover principles two and three. And the second principle is this. A content person is satisfied and unsatisfied. And I'll explain that. A content person is satisfied and yet somehow unsatisfied. I get the satisfaction side of things from verse 11 in which we see, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I'm learned in whatever situation to be content. He was completely satisfied with his circumstances. He wasn't anxious about whether or not the Philippians were going to supply the needs that he had, supply for the needs that he had. He was content. He was satisfied. And yet, before we forget chapter 3, we realize, and I'll get there in a minute, that he was also unsatisfied in a sense. So Paul here teaches in verses 10 through 19 that genuine contentment produces joy. Are you interested in a joyful life, friend? I know you are, because we all are. If you're interested in a joyful life, Paul, the apostle of God, says one of the routes, one of the paths to that joy is contentment. Genuine contentment. He begins, if you remember back in verse 4, we, most of us have that re, uh, memorized, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say it, what? Rejoice. So he commands joy. He commands us to be joyful people. And then in verses 11 or 10 through 19, he demonstrates what that means. He demonstrates how contentment brings joy to the Christian life. In fact, every issue that Paul addresses in this wonderful little letter that we've been studying is for, the, is for producing and guarding joy in the Christian life. That is why the letter was written, to produce and guard joy in a gospel partner life, a gospel partner's Christian's life. And from his lessons on being joyful in God's providence, even while in prison in chapter 1, all the way to his exhortations about harmonious relationships in chapter 4, Paul is concerned that Christians be joyful gospel partners. That's what Paul wants for his readers, including you and me, to be joyful gospel partners. But he's satisfied in his circumstances, and yet he's unsatisfied. What do I mean? Turn back one page to chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and I want you to look at verses 7 through 14 while I explain this. Verses 7 through 14 demonstrate that Paul had a form of discontentment or unsatisfied soul. Uh, he knew, as he states here in verses 7 through 10, that nothing in this world would satisfy him. Nothing would fulfill him. What does he call the things of this world in verse 8? Rubbish. Remember, he had all these things that he had accomplished, all these things that he possessed. What did he call them? Rubbish in verse 8. They didn't satisfy, right? He was satisfied and unsatisfied at the same time. He was content in his physical circumstances, as we learned in verse or chapter 4, but he's unsatisfied with two things that we see in chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. The first is, Nothing in the world will satisfy him. He thinks it's rubbish. And then secondly, and beautifully, he says in verses 10 through 14 that he's unsatisfied with his affection for Christ. 
He wants more of Jesus, more and more of Christ. That's what he says in verses 10 through 14. So he's unsatisfied in those two areas. The world can't satisfy me, and I'm not overly satisfied with my own passion for Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that. So this is what I want to speak to you about in this point. And by the way, this is not unique just to the Apostle Paul. It's true of every content Christian. If a Christian has learned the art of godly contentment, they can be content in any circumstance that God has put them in. But at the same time, they would acknowledge that the world doesn't satisfy, they remained unsatisfied by the world, and that their affection for Jesus is insufficient. That's what a joyful gospel partner will, will be able to communicate to you. I'm satisfied with what I have, where God has me, but I'm unsatisfied with what the world provides. I'm unsatisfied with my passion for Jesus. So if God were to grant an excess of physical possessions to you, if God were to grant an excess of physical possessions to you and withhold himself, would you be satisfied with that? You would not, would you? No. You require God himself. Otherwise, you're not satisfied. You're just like Paul if you're a content gospel Christian. And you remember Psalm 119, verse 57? We spent some time in that verse here a while back. The verse says, the Lord is my portion. Um, what we discovered when we studied that verse was that the godly person settles for nothing but God himself. The godly man or woman doesn't settle for the gifts God gives. They push through those gifts to the giver of those gifts. My portion is God, not the gifts he gives. The, God is the portion I seek, not the blessings that come as byproducts of knowing him. Here's an important truth that we must understand. Contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. So, Christian, have you learned it? Or are you still discontent? Paul said it twice here in verse, um, where is it? 11 and 12. He says, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and want. So he learned it. Even the apostle Paul, if he had to learn it, we have to learn it. And how do we do that? Well, uh, we're naturally, in our sin nature, always seeking a greater thrill, always a better experience, always a higher high. We are naturally discontent people, just like Adam and Eve. We're just like them. God designed us with insatiable appetites, with great affections. We want to fill these caverns of want with something that satisfies. We're always seeking that next high, that thing that will satisfy in our sin and rebellion against God, we pursue money, sex, prestige, possessions, physical gratifications to fulfill. We pursue, we pursue all of his gifts. All these things that I just mentioned to you are gifts from God. And we try to replace God with those gifts, which is sin, which is the sin of Adam and Eve. We don't naturally believe God can satisfy us, and we even resist his attempts to do so. But even though God designed us with these great appetites, he also designed us to be fulfilled. And that satisfaction, that fulfilling, that contentedness comes with only one thing. You've guessed it, right? It's God himself. That's the only thing. 
that will fulfill all your desires, all those impulses to buy another car, have another home, have another lipstick, if you're into that. Because there always is a better lipstick, right? Pretty sure of that. Augustine said this, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Does that resonate with you, friend? Our hearts are restless. Would you agree with that? Yes. And they, are, they continue to be restless until they find their rest in its maker. Jeremiah Burroughs, long gone Puritan, said this. <laughs> Listen to this. This is awesome. My brethren, the reason why you are not content in the things of the world is not because you don't have enough of them. You've already proven that, right? That is not the reason, but the reason is because they are not things proportional, proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it's because they have but little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he would gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind, and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to the craving stomach. The reason we keep seeking more and different things is not because we don't have enough of those things, it's because they're not intended to satisfy. Only God is. That's the beauty of God creating us. That's, the, that's why we keep coming for him and not being satisfied with all this other stuff. Sooner or later, you figure out that new and better things don't do it for you. Some people, that takes longer than others. But sooner or later, we get there and we realize, oh, maybe it is my creator who will satisfy. And in fact, that's the case. That is what God does the gospel teaches us this truth. Sin, we know, separates us from God, and we have no true desire for him in our natural selves, right? That's, that only happens after the Holy Spirit regenerates your soul. And when, when the Holy Spirit regenerates your soul, what happens? The gospel becomes attractive to you. All of a sudden, you're interested in Jesus. All of a sudden, you're interested in Christian fellowship and the teaching of the Word of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has applied the gospel to your heart and transformed your heart. It's called regeneration. Now this is of interest to you. Now you begin to learn. You realize through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying process that God takes each Christian through, that the things of the world don't satisfy, and it's only God who does. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's what we learn through applying the gospel to our daily lives. As we grow in Christ, we learn this. Just as Paul learned contentment, to be less and less satisfied with what the world offers and to develop greater and greater passion for Jesus. Have you noticed that, Christian friend? That you have more desire for Christ now than you did a year ago or 10 years ago? The more we grow in Christ, the less we're satisfied with worldly things and the more dissatisfied we are with our present affections. We look at ourselves and we say, I wish I loved Jesus more. Just like Paul did in Philippians 3, 
10 through 14. He says, I strain on towards Christ. I press forward towards Christ. Even the apostle Paul went through this very same thing. Wanting more of Christ. Jeremiah Burroughs again said, a little in the world will content a Christian for his passage, that is, for his journey through life, but all the world 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. Have you learned that yet, Christian friend? The world won't fulfill you, only Christ will. When we come to faith, as immature as our spiritual lives are, we are granted a heart that is capable of and drawn to knowing our Creator. That happens the moment you're converted. God introduces a longing for himself into your soul. A person who is capable of God will never be satisfied with anything but God. Nothing but God can fill a heart that's capable of him. The unconverted heart knows nothing of this, of course, but even the most immature Christian has a sense of wanting more of God. The great preacher from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, we must come back to the soul and to God who made it. We were made for him. We are meant for him. We have a correspondence with him, and we will never come to rest until, like the needle on the compass, we strike that northern point, and there we come to rest and nowhere else. You see, Paul gives an example of this satisfaction and unsatisfaction in Philippians 4. Look at verse 6. Turn to Philippians 4, 6, and I want to show you something, how Paul demonstrates this principle of being satisfied and yet unsatisfied at the same time. <clears throat> Paul says that the peace of God will guard your hearts if we avoid anxiety and pray about everything and are thankful for everything. You see that there in verse 6? He says the peace of God is a result of that attitude. And then he says in verse 9 that we want more than just the peace of God. What do we want? He flips the words. He says, we want the God of peace. <laughs> we don't, we're not just satisfied with the peace of God. That's a great gift, right? Do you want the peace of God? Sure you do. You want all of God's good gifts. And he's willing to give them. But beyond the gifts, beyond the peace of God, we want the God of peace. This is what Paul is saying here. It satisfies us, yes. But more than the peace of God, we want this God who grants the peace. We certainly want this gift, but we want the giver of the gift. We, we want the mercy of God, but we want the God of mercy more. The unregenerate heart is content just with the gifts, with peace, mercy, possessions, health. In fact, that's all they know of contentment. That's their only experience of contentment, even as shallow as it is. But they really don't have an interest in the giver of the gifts. But that isn't the case with someone whose heart has been changed. Someone who has experienced the regenerating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit desires not only the effect, but the cause. We want the peace of God as well as the fountain from which it flows. We aren't satisfied with just health. We want the God who grants us health. We aren't satisfied with just wealth, 
financial sustenance. We want the God who provided it, don't we? Yes. Even though we're satisfied with our circumstances, we remain somehow unsatisfied. We want more and more of God. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Could we find that in your journal? Is that something we would read in your journal? The only thing that will ultimately satisfy the genuine believer is God himself. In verses 11 and 12 of uh, Philippians 4, Paul acknowledges that he had to learn contentment. And so how do we learn contentment? Do you want to learn it? Or are you, are you content in your in discontentment? <laughs> How do we learn contentment in, the, in the, this sense that Paul is describing? My grandma Smith used to tell me all the time, I can't tell you how many times she told me this. It's usually when I was asking for seconds on dessert. Um, she would say, John, it's not what you want, it's but what you get that makes you happy. It's not what you want. It's what you get that makes you happy. I used to disagree with that to her face. I said, Grandma, that makes no sense. How can you be content with something you don't have? And she says, John, it's not what you want. It's what you get that makes you happy. It took me years to figure that statement out and then a few more years to agree with it. I have finally grown to the place. She was right. She was right. It is only the things that I have that bring contentment, not the things that I want. In fact, those things bring discontentment, don't they? If I'm constantly focusing on my wants, I'm going to miss the joy that comes from what I have. Learning these things comes from spiritual maturity, comes from life experiences, which is a good argument for spending time with older Christians. God teaches us to be content by taking us through times of plenty and times of want, like Paul experienced. The connecting thread in all of life experiences that there is only one thing really, and this is the connecting thread, there's only one thing that really brings joy and contentment to God's people. And what is it? Whether you're in time of want or time of plenty, God is the only true source of satisfying in the Christian life. And if you haven't learned that yet, you may need to pay closer attention to your life. Maybe spend a little time examining yourself. God took Paul through all sorts of stuff, right? We read of that in 2 Corinthians 11. He lists all the stuff, the bad stuff he went through. Shipwrecks, hunger, heartache, abuse, unfair treatment, along with the, the plenty of things that he had. I mean, he, from time to time, good things happened to Paul. But they're not as well known as the bad things. But all of them pointed him to the only source of lasting fulfillment, which was Jesus Christ. He was clear on the matter. He learned it. So what lessons specifically did Paul learn about contentment? What I want to do here as we work our way through these five principles in these few verses in Philippians 4, is I want to show you how Paul learned these specific principles. So how did Paul learn this particular principle, this, this second principle? First of all, he learned contentment not by adding to his resources, but by subtracting from his desires. Not by adding, but by subtracting. This is a actually a pretty good trick if you learn it. A secret of contentment is not to add to your possessions, 
but to subtract your desires of possessions. It'll equal contentment. Even the first century Stoic Epictetus said this, wealth consists not in having a great possession or having great possessions, but having few wants. Another secular man, John Stuart Mill said, I have learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than attempting to satisfy them. These things from the secular mind, all right? They understood this basic tenet of contentment as it relates to joy. The secular mind. Of course, the apostle Paul knew this as well, and he sanctified the idea by applying it to the Christian life here in Philippians 4. If there's anyone who should be content, it's the genuine Christian, the genuine believer, right? Paul learned this on his missionary journeys, as we read about in verses 10 and 11. The unconverted person and the immature Christian believe that, that, well, the lie that the world is selling, that the only way to contentment is to fulfill the desires that you have. That's the only way you're going to be content, the world tells us, is to buy that truck you want, to live in that house you want, to have that job, to have that spouse. Then you'll be content. How many times do we hear this in how many different ways? This is the world of marketing that we live in. That's the only thing that'll make me happy, we think. That's a deception. That's a successful marketing trick. But the truth of the matter is, to subtract from your desires to equal your current circumstances is really the only path to contentment. Instead of having your desires way up here, bring them down here to where you actually live. And what comes with that? Contentment. You might say, well, that's a lot easier said than done, Pastor John, especially in this culture. Well, does anybody have verse 13 memorized? This is why Paul included it, because it's difficult. To do what I'm suggesting, to do what he's writing is difficult. And so he puts verse 13 here. This verse is probably on some plaque in your garage or maybe in your basement. It's common. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's usually, you know, somebody reads that right before they jump out of a plane on their first parachute run, right? That's not what Paul meant. Paul doesn't mean you can fly if you put your mind to it. He means you can actually be content in the circumstances God has you in by trusting in the one who indwells you. Jesus Christ. We have new affections when we come to faith. You remember what Paul said about the person who comes to faith? Behold, all is new. Our affections are new. Our interests are different. They're new. We're drawn to Christ. He actually fulfills us. So first way that Paul applied this particular lesson is he learned contentment not by adding to his resources, but by subtracting from his desires. Secondly, he learned contentment not by ridding himself of a burden, but by adding a burden. Think about that. He didn't rid himself of a burden. He actually added a burden which brought contentment. What do I mean by this? What is Paul talking about here? Instead of thinking that the only joyful way forward in a trial or an affliction is to rid yourself of that trial or affliction, we should join the Apostle Paul in acknowledging the greatness of our sin. You will be surprised how that changed your view of things, especially your contentment. Paul said this to Timothy, his number one disciple, 1 Timothy 1.15, 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. That wasn't a random, obscure thought in Paul's mind. That crossed his mind regularly. He knew he didn't deserve better from God. He didn't think God was abusing him because of all the stuff he endured. He expected it. He knew he didn't deserve better. In our day, we think that the only way to become content with our circumstances is to rid ourselves of pain, rid ourselves of discomfort. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. But again, that is a worldly deception. That isn't the truth. And let me try to explain that to you. Um, If you rid yourself of a pain, is that the end of your pains? If you rid yourself of discomfort, is that the end of your discomfort? Not if you live another 10 minutes. It's not. We believe what the Bible says about the trials in life. They're always going to be here. A man is made for trouble like sparks fly upward, is what it says in Ecclesiastes. This is life. Just because you get rid of one trial, one discomfort, doesn't mean they're gone. (laughs) They return. And sometimes with greater intensity, don't they? They do. But the reality is if you will be less burdened by your circumstances... Not by removing the burden, but by adding the burden of the sin of your heart. Let me, let me try to explain this to you. This may seem strange to you, maybe sound a little bit Puritan to you, but the way that you gain contentment in trials is actually by adding something, not by taking away something difficult. Paul didn't believe he was being mistreated by God. He, he knew that he was a sinner that deserved nothing. He added this particular concern to his heart. I am the chief of sinners. So we must change our focus from our difficult circumstances to our fight against sin. Instead of focusing on how bad things are, why don't you focus on defeating and conquering the sin in your life? This will produce a constant progress in contentment. Broken circumstances are lightened by a broken heart. A broken and heavy heart is is revived by a broken heart. So if your heart is heavy, friends, the way to revive your heart is to have it broken with your sin. Recognize it. Confess it. Pursue holiness. Next, I want you to see in this area of contentment is that Paul learned contentment by transforming the affliction into something else. He learned contentment by transforming this bad affliction into something good. The spiritually immature person or the unbeliever believe that the only way to contentment is to get rid of the affliction. If I can just get healthy, if I could just get out of debt, if I could get a better job, a better spouse, something better, everything would improve, right? Well, the mature person, joyfully content person, embraces the trial or the affliction knowing that God accomplishes his purposes most profoundly in adversity not without it. That's how you content yourself in adversity, is to change it into something else. Instead of complaining about how uncomfortable you are, acknowledge that God uses the discomfort to make you into the person he wants you to be. That brings contentment in your circumstances. 
The content and joyful Christian knows the secret of turning pain into pleasure. They know that God's grace can change any trial into good. We actually believe Romans 8.28, right? What does 8.28 say? All things turn out for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things are for good. Even the bad things, even the cancer, by the, by the way, even death. God's providence and grace always take the sting out of difficult circumstances. We have a Savior who actually did this. He turned water into wine. He took a bad situation and made it good. This is what Jesus specializes in. This is what, how we must think of our circumstances. If the burden is financial, the worldly person would say that the only way out of this struggle is to improve your financial position so that you can have the things that you believe will make you happy. That's the only way out, right? Well, the person who has learned contentment sees financial poverty as an opportunity for spiritual rich, being spiritually rich. And Jesus wasn't kidding when he said that it was very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. As you think through biblical history, as you think through church history, you're never going to find one godly person who came out of an affliction worse than, when, than we, they went in. Have you looked much at that in Scripture? Have you studied history, Christian history? Not one of God's people comes out of an affliction worse off than when they went in. God always accomplishes good for those who are going through it. Always. Affliction always benefits the believer. But how many godly people have we seen, even personally, without looking into history or into the Bible, how many people that have at one point been godly been upended by their prosperity? Many. Money has taken out more servants of God than anything else in human history, which is why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's a dangerous path. Now, is it wrong to be rich? Absolutely not. Of course not. It all depends on your attitude towards the riches. A content person is satisfied in their physical circumstances, but unsatisfied with worldly things and unsatisfied with their passion for Jesus. The third principle of contentment that we see in these verses, the third principle is seen in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Third principle, a content person is separate from their circumstances. A content person is separate from their circumstances. So many people are so wrapped up in their circumstances, you would think that they and their circumstances are one and the same. But that is not the case with a content, godly person, a joyful person. They're separate from their circumstances. They can see their circumstances as separate from themselves. This is an important principle that we must learn. Part of the spiritual journey, part of being sanctified, is to learn to live above our circumstances and not let them dictate our contentment or our joy. If you're dependent upon positive circumstances to be joyful, get used to an unjoyful life. 
You don't have to submit yourselves to your circumstances. You can live separate from them. I'm going to show you how by looking at the Apostle Paul. I know it's a difficult principle, but it's critically important. We must pursue it. Paul was not a seminary ivory tower professor who rarely ever left his office to live in the real and practical Christian world. No, he lived in the trenches. The Apostle Paul daily had to live the truths he wrote and preached. This was the Apostle Paul's life. This is what we see in the New Testament letters are from a man who experienced these things personally. From the beginning of his spiritual life, soon after his conversion, all the way to his death in prison, Paul had to live out the truths he had learned and that he was teaching to people in these New Testament letters. He was regularly mistreated, abused, betrayed, and hated. His circumstances were extremely dire, and yet, it seems, he lived above them. He learned the principles of contentment in the school of hard knocks, not in some ivory tower in a padded, nice, plush room. His circumstances did not control his contentment or his joy. First of all, he learned contentment not by changing his circumstances, but by, by, by being faithful in his circumstances. All right, he learned contentment not by changing his circumstances, as bad as they were, but by being faithful in his circumstances. If you know anything of the Apostle Paul, you know that. You know that he continued to preach and teach and minister in the midst of his difficulty. He couldn't just retreat and feel sorry for himself when he encountered difficulty. If he had done that, we wouldn't have the New Testament. But here we have it, right in front of us, black and white. He continued to faithfully execute the duties of an apostle that he was given to steward in the midst of his trials. The spiritually immature person thinks that the only way to contentment is to fulfill their wants and to eliminate discomfort. Then I'll be happy. Not the Apostle Paul, not the spiritually mature person, not the joyfully content person. They remain faithful in the midst of trying times. They continue to fulfill the duties with which they have been entrusted in the middle of difficulty. They don't shrink back. They don't fade off. They don't disappear. They don't grumble and complain. When you're in the middle of it, your question shouldn't be, how come me, or how do I get out of this, but what does God want me to do in this situation? That's the question we ask. If your circumstances have changed for the worse, let me say something to you that might shock you. God's behind those changes. <laughs> if your circumstances have changed for the worse, God is behind those circumstantial changes. What does he want you to do now that you're in those times that he has ordained? To feel sorry for yourself? To complain, grumble, manipulate, withdraw? Like so many people do? Or does he want you to continue to serve, love, give, and pray? The answer is obvious. If you're a mom going through hard times, whatever moms go through, they go through a lot of hard times. I know a couple moms, they go through difficulty a lot. What happens to a godly, content mom when she goes through difficulty? Does she withdraw, complain, gripe? No. They continue to serve their family. They continue to love their husband. That's what they do. They continue to serve their church and love church people. If you're a dad going through hard times, 
You continue being a godly dad. You continue to provide for your family. You continue to lead them in worship. You continue being a godly father, even though it's tough, even though your circumstances are dire. Because we have dire circumstances, we don't have the right to get out of the duties that God has given us, do we? Of course not. Maybe one of the reasons God has changed your circumstances for the worse is to get your attention, to help you refocus your life. Maybe that's been lost in the recent past. Maybe you, you've become a bit apathetic. Maybe you've become a too worldly, prideful, independent. Maybe your current circumstances are actually a gift from God to spare you from further apostasy. Thought about that maybe. One of the best things to do in difficult circumstances is to apply your time, energy, and effort to do the things that you know you should be doing anyway. One of the worst things you can possibly do in the midst of trial and difficulty is to retreat into self-pity or withdraw from the fellowship of believers and suspend your service and participation in the local church. You know how many times I've seen that happen? People go through dark times and you know one of the first things to go? Fellowship, church participation. It's a wonderful trick of Satan. It works all the time. Unfortunately, many choose this path and end up even more discouraged than when they began. They find themselves out of church questioning the reality of God's love or even questioning the existence of God himself. They start asking themselves questions, well, if God really loved me, then off they go. But I want to encourage you, instead of pursuing that path, to pursue the path that Joseph of Scripture pursued. Did he see himself separate from his circumstances? You bet. He didn't complain, didn't argue with God. He exalted God. He continued to, things, to do the things he knew he should do, even as a slave in Egypt. King David, he spent times on both sides of this issue, didn't he? Sometimes he responded wonderfully to difficult circumstances. Sometimes he didn't respond so well. We can learn what not to do and what to do just by looking at King David's life. We could be like Nehemiah. We could follow the example of Esther and Ruth. What wonderful examples of people who did what they were supposed to do when times got tough. Even though things were horribly difficult, they continued to do the basic faithful things that God had called them to do. Unlike Elijah, who decided to have a pity party when things got bad. Let's, let's, let's be like Joseph. Let's avoid being like Elijah and, and the bad sides of King David. Let's pursue the examples of Esther and Ruth and Paul, who in the midst of hardship did what they were supposed to do anyways. This is one way to contentment, something we must learn. And then finally, the Apostle Paul learned contentment by yielding or melting his will into God's will in his circumstances. He submitted himself to God's will. This is what we read here in these verses, verses 10, 11, and 12 in Philippians 4. He didn't want to blame the Philippians for his circumstances, didn't want to blame God for his circumstances. He believed and embraced the joyfully believed and embraced that God had placed him in the situation he was and the Philippians in the situation they were. He yielded his will to God's will. And here's a little side note to this that might be helpful to you. 
God is actually, actually at work in not just your life, but the life of those that are sitting beside you and live around you. They, they also have a, a gracious, loving God at work in their lives, just like he's at work in your life. So we need to give each other space in regarding these things. We need to be sources of encouragement and challenge in these trying circumstances that we see each other facing. What is God's will for your life? What is God's will for the life of the person sitting next to you? Let me say this. There is one will for God, from God for every single believer. This is a biblical reality. Those of you who were in our Romans series know this. Romans 8.29 makes it abundantly clear that God has one purpose for you, and that is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. He wants you to be like Jesus. He has taken you through the circumstances of your life so that you will be like Jesus. That gives you a confidence to rest on his providence. It gives you contentment in the midst of extreme circumstances. God is up to something in my life. Join him in that. Bless his name for that. Praise him and thank him for that. Let's, let's pray.